0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a medical oncologist has some advice for cancer patients and people who have survived cancer as more businesses open back up during the COVID 19 pandemic.
1: I think uh, certainly we want to be able to weigh risks versus benefits, and so there's a lot of benefit for cancer patients, even those who are undergoing active treatment to take advantage of the nicer weather to go on walks.
0: And a microbiologist who collects ticks explains how to protect ourselves and what types of diseases these tiny insects carry.
2: There are two ways you can do it. One, you can apply the tick repellent on human body, or you can apply the outdoor clothing with a chemical called permethrin. Paramethrin kills the tick. Upon contact with permethrin,
0: ticks will die. All that plus a visit from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about the diseases ticks carry and what to do if we get bit from a microbiologist with expertise in ticks. But first, a medical oncologist discusses the risks of COVID 19 for people with a cancer history. from Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As businesses begin opening back up and more people are venturing out in public, how safe are things for cancer patients who are at increased risk for COVID-19? I'm talking about this with medical oncologist Dr. Sam Benjamin from the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Benjamin. Thank you. So, if I have cancer and I'm still in treatment, is it safe for me to go out now?
1: It's a good question, Amber. I think there, you know, it depends on each individual patient, uh, what sort of treatment they're undergoing, uh, and uh, their risk will vary depending on those factors. Um, uh, like anything else, um, patients' comorbidities and, uh, you know, uh, so there so their other medical conditions. Um, and how immunocompromised they are from the treatment that they're receiving will dictate that. For example, uh, patients who are undergoing would be called cytotoxic chemotherapy. So uh, traditional uh, chemotherapy uh, uh, patients who tend to have uh, more, more often lower blood counts and lower white blood cell counts so that they would be certainly at more risk than those who would be, say, undergoing uh, like anti-hormonal treatments for their breast cancer, for example, uh, where their immune system is relatively intact. Um, We also uh, are in the era of um, targeted therapies and immunotherapy, so uh, they tend to do better in terms of their uh, immunity and uh, retaining the immune system. The general rule patients undergoing active treatment for their cancer can be more immunocompromised due to the underlying cancer itself. We've known that for a while. And we've also had early uh, data uh, when COVID COVID um, pandemic started that patients who've had a history of treatment for cancer and who even had a history of chemotherapy, not necessarily undergoing chemotherapy at the time, were at an some somewhat an increased risk. Um, I haven't seen any recent data looking at it more, more thoroughly, but yes, I think there's a general uh, understanding that there is, that's the case.
0: So when we talk about cancer patients being at increased risk, it all comes down to their immunocompromised state. And did I hear you correctly that cancer can cause that on its own? It's not just treatment for cancer?
1: Uh, that is right. And by that, I mean those who have uh, uh, active uh, cancer. And so, in, in a sense, you know, if you've had breast cancer or you had a history of breast cancer 10 years ago and you may be still taking an anti pill, pill, uh, you know, that the risk may be very, very small compared to someone who is Uh, who has stage four breast cancer or stage four cancer of any sort uh, and undergoing chemotherapy. So there is, you know, so there is a, uh, there's definitely a variability there, right?
0: And so a person could be on chemo or be undergoing radiation or immunotherapy. Stem cell transplant recipients, they would also be at risk too, right? Certainly. So
1: transplant patients are always going to be at, uh, Significantly increase risk, and that's one of the reasons why uh, our bone marrow transplant team, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, put a halt to certain uh, transplants for a, uh, for a little while, except for emergent uh, reasons. So, uh, you know, so the, yeah, they are at especially increased risk for sure, and that's a good point because they uh, they are severely immunocompromised.
0: Now, what about someone that's several years out from cancer treatment? You know, they were treated successfully 10 years ago. Do do they have to uh, consider themselves higher risk still? Um,
1: you know, again, I think there's some data that maybe if they receive chemotherapy as part of that, uh, as part of the treatment protocol that in the past that they may be. Uh, but I think they're still at lower risk than someone, significantly lower risk. Than someone who is actively getting treatment right now. And, uh, you know, uh, but certainly slightly, uh, somewhat at increased risk compared to people who've never had treatment, for sure, yeah. All
0: right, well, let me bring us back to talking about uh, someone who's actively in treatment now. As things start opening back up and the weather's much nicer, um, is it safe to go to open air spots like parks and beaches? So I think as long
1: as they take people, as as long as you take uh, common sense uh, precautions, uh, where you continue to maintain social distancing uh, and uh, preferably wearing a mask, uh, if you're gonna be, uh, to avoid coming in very close contact with folks. uh, I think it should be safe. Uh, Open air should be safe. Uh, Uh, The more recent CDC guidance says that the the transmission uh, rate uh, from surfaces is uh, more limited than they may have thought. It's mainly droplets. Um, So I think uh, certainly we want to be able to weigh risks versus benefits. And so there's a lot of benefit for cancer patients, even those who are undergoing active treatment, to take advantage of the nicer weather, to go on walks. And fresh air, and so you know, I think there's a balance. Uh, so I wouldn't categorically, uh, by any means, say that they shouldn't. Um, uh, uh, open spaces, with where you can uh, maintain social distancing, uh, is uh, you know. And then, of course, the the, uh, the uh, recommended hygiene practices of uh, of washing hands and uh, things of those sort, uh, things of that sort are going to be uh, helpful and important as well.
0: Now, hand sanitizer. Um, uh, from what I understand, hand washing with soap and water is the best way to, san- to yeah, clean your hands. It remains the
1: best way, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: But is the sanitizer more necessary to keep with you if you've got a cancer diagnosis?
1: I, I think it's uh, it's uh, it uh, makes sense uh, that when you can. Always uh, have access to a, you know, uh, to uh, running water. Uh, it certainly, is a good idea. But I think open spaces like parks and uh, and going on long walks, uh, where you're, uh, sure, where you're pretty sure that you can maintain social distancing, is is uh, safe for most patients.
0: This is upstate's Health link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with medical oncologist Dr. Sam Benjamin from the Upstate Cancer Center. so let's talk about how safe it is to go to doctors' appointments because I, I know some offices have been doing sort of remote appointments, but as we enter the phases of reopening, more doctors' offices are having patients come to the office. So what's being done to assure that patients are safe if they have a compromised immune system? Yeah, so
1: here at the Upstate Cancer Center, we have a, a very rigorous protocol in place. we a screening patients right at the entrance, uh, screening with question with a short questionnaire, and uh, meaning um, you know making sure uh, no one gets comes into the facility with uh, who's had a, a fever or cough. So, and then uh, so uh, loop surgical masks are still uh, required. Uh, for both providers patients uh, and even guests right um and we are minimizing uh, uh, family and uh, uh, non essential visits so so i think we've taken a lot of precautions as an institution uh, that's applicable to the cancer center as much as it is for the entire uh, university hospital system In terms of office visits, uh, what we have done in oncology is try to, as much as possible, to minimize uh, uh, person-to-person physical visits uh, by utilizing uh, telemedicine um, and been quite successful. I think uh, we continue to have an uptake of around 30% um, uh, in terms of all office visits. Uh, uh, so patients who do not, who do not require infusional services. So patients who do not need to come in for, uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy infusions, those who are on, um, oral medications, targeted therapies, hormonal treatments, we've been able to minimize their need for in-person visits. Um, so we've been able to cut down on the traffic, uh, foot traffic into the, uh, cancer center, uh, We have been relatively successful even in the infusional space to do so. Um, There was a recent survey of around 55 cancer centers across the country. And I'm happy to say we've we've, uh, we've, uh, done better than most by cutting down the infusional volume by 16% compared to less than 10% in many cases in other centers. I think part of what we can do successfully is to continue to uh, utilize, uh, you know, technology, um, uh, telemedicine technology to, um, uh, to minimize, uh, in-person visits as much as we can.
0: What do you advise cancer patients or cancer survivors to do if they suspect they might be infected with COVID-19? Are they supposed to call their cancer doctor or their primary care doctor?
1: Before each visit, especially if they're going to come in for an in-person visit, we uh, over the phone we do screen uh, patients beforehand before they even come uh, before they even uh, uh, hit the entry point, um, so they can contact their oncologist or their primary care physician, and we have um, we have the hotline numbers that they can call where they can still get screening done and avoid having to come into the facility itself.
0: Now we've talked a lot about patients themselves, but in terms of their household contacts, their spouses or children or parents, um, what do you advise in terms of the household people? Can they go out and interact? Can they go grocery shopping safely Can and then come back home? Are there extra measures that they need to take to try to help the cancer patient or survivor stay healthy?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question because uh, unfortunately we know that around 50 percent of these uh, of cases are asymptomatic carriers um and so uh obviously we'll, we don't live in isolation so our cancer patients live as in uh in a household where there will be uh, family members who need to go back to work uh you know grocery shopping uh you know, to us, it's. Uh, I think uh, if they have family members uh, younger, um, uh, either children or grandchildren who can do grocery shopping for them, uh, and deliver them to the uh, to their doorstep, that's great. Um, but then, when it comes to really immediate family members who live with them, uh, like spouses or even children or grandchildren. Uh, that can be much more of a challenge, you know. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to completely really avoid exposures to immediate family members.
0: Do you recommend that cancer patients get tested?
1: I would say uh, no.
0: Well, thank you so much to Dr. Sam Benjamin from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Up next, what every central New Yorker needs to know about ticks on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Since his lab began collecting ticks in July 2019, Dr. Sarvanan Thangamani has received almost 4,000 ticks. Nearly 90% have been deer ticks, and about a third of those carry the bacterium that causes Lyme disease. Dr. Thangamani is a professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he's talking with me today. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thangamani.
2: Uh, good morning. It's my pleasure to come back and talk about the tick-borne disease and also other research that is happening in the lab.
0: Well, tell us, what are you predicting for Central New York's tick season this year?
2: Well, I think my prediction is not going to be a good prediction, unfortunately, because we had a a warm winter. Uh, January and March are, in my opinion, a little warmer than usual, which means that ticks were uh, getting to be active much earlier than normal. So early in the spring, we started to see a lot of ticks that we normally would see late spring and also the emergence of nymphal ticks a little earlier this year than uh, we normally would see in a regular winter season. So I think it is a confluence of the events that warm winter and then now, um, you know, people are hunking, hunkering back because of the COVID-19 and then suddenly they get a good good warm weather. They want to get out and explore the woods and nature, get the hiking trail. So in my opinion, it's a confluence of events that uh earlier tick season, people hunkering down because of COVID nineteen, and then suddenly now we have really great weather happening in, you know, in central New York. So people are getting out, ticks are also getting out. So it is a marriage of you know tick borne disease. So-, so
0: earlier ticks, but does that necessarily mean more ticks too? Because they have more time to Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So ticks means that more ticks and uh, also they have more time to find a, a host to feed on. And it's a it's a perfect combination of events, unfortunately.
0: So has the pandemic had an impact on the ticks other than the fact that so many of us are anxious to get out of our house and get out into nature?
2: So pandemic had an indirect influence on uh, exposure of ticks. of people getting exposure? is because for the last two and a half months, you know, we were staying primarily inside our houses and uh, slowly the relaxations are are opening up. You know, we want to venture out. We want to get some, you know, fresh air and also, you know, keep our body in healthy condition. We try to go out. Also, takes a waiting for us at the time because it's perfect weather. And uh, also, uh, you know, you may have seen on TVs and YouTubes that uh, wildlife are roaming in the streets and everywhere, right, which means you know, it's the same thing happening. So people are not there, which means that the wildlife would actually even venture into the human trails where humans normally would actually trail. And ticks from those wildlife animals would drop off very close to the trail. So I think that COVID has an indirect effect on uh, how many ticks, how many, how people
0: will be getting exposed to ticks. Well, your lab has been testing ticks that are sent in by the public for about a year now. Tell me what you found, how many have you received?
2: So as of today, um, we have, I'm just looking into the data that as of um, right now, how many ticks are in our system is 4,909 ticks. Of that, we have processed nearly 4,500. I would say that majority of them are deer ticks um, and around 35% of the ticks carry at least one of the tick borne diseases that we are testing that is highly prevalent in Northeast United States. Um,
0: so are all of these ticks coming from the Northeast or from New York State?
2: Northeast is what I would safely say, because we get uh, ticks from pretty much um, everywhere. We ha- we got ticks even from Florida and Arizona, but what we, our interest is primarily the ticks from the New York State, so that's what we analyze, and I mean, we analyze every tick, but... Uh, for our in for our public display that we sh- we display the results in our website it's primarily the state of New York because it's uh, if we stretch to the entire state of entire united states i don't think we have resources to do we have the you know uh, goodwill and wish to do it, but I don't think we have financial resource and also human resource to do that uh, but amongst the ticks that we have received from the New York state. Uh, deer ticks are the dominant ones, and uh, almost 33 percent, one in three ticks carry Lyme disease agent, Lyme disease bacteria, the little Borrelia wow. burgdorferi. So that's been consistent for us throughout the, the last year, uh, throughout the season.
0: Do you receive um, bugs that are not ticks from people? Oh, yes. You do? Yes.
2: I would say yesterday when I was identifying uh, a packet, it was a spider. Oh. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Well, the, you know, coincidentally is because some, when we don't have enough resources or staff in the lab, I can step in and help them to keep things moving. So yesterday I was asked to check one of the specimen, so I went and looked at it, and to everyone's surprise, it's actually a skin scab from a human. Oh. I thought it was a tick, but unfortunately that's a good chunk of a skin there. So we do get other insects, primarily spiders and bugs. And at times, we do get human skin samples as well.
0: So if the majority of the ticks you receive are deer ticks, what are some of the other species that you've seen that are of the most concern to humans?
2: So second, the second most tick species that we got is the, the dog tick, Dermacentor variabilis. Um, it do transmit uh, uh, rickettsial diseases of in, human importance. The third and most abundant one that we are getting is the lone star tick. That is something that is of the concern to me primarily because it transmits a variety of disease-causing agents from bacterium to viruses. Also it causes meat allergy in people. And it was thought to be in the southern United States and central United States. But in the past few years, we started to see the northward spread of this particular tick. it carries, my, I mean, for me, because I'm a tick one virus virologist, so I, I like the fact, uh, well, I'm more interested in the Lone Star Tick primarily because it transmits two Tik1 viruses called heartland virus and bourbon virus. They had the potential to um, cause severe disease, including fatal disease in humans. Uh, so it's very important for, uh, for human health. And our lab is investigating uh, heartland virus as well. We are trying to see if you can develop novel countermeasures to prevent the transmission of a hotter virus to humans.
0: So how can you compare the lone star tick for me to a deer tick? Is it bigger than a deer tick? Or how would people recognize it?
2: So lone star female ticks are very easy to recognize um, because they will have a white spot on the back of the tick. So that's how you can tell immediately that it is a lone star female. Um, however, even males are easy to identify, even the smaller stages like nymphal and larval stages of the uh, lone star tick are easy to identify because they will have a very long mouth part and uh, they are much, much larger than a deer tick. I would say two to three times larger than a deer tick. And uh, lone star ticks stay attached to a mammal for at least uh, 10 days to 12 days solidly. Because they are bigger tick means that they need to take more blood.
0: They so do take... they, they swell as they take the blood? Yes, So they exactly. become more obvious?
2: Yeah, and you can easily find the uh, amblyomma ticks because of the sheer size. And uh, and they are very aggressive feeders. So that's big behaviorally. Deer ticks, they like to quest yes. on the tip of the grass, wait for some human to come close by, and then they latch on our socks or our shirts and then crawl upwards, right, or wherever the tick want to feed on us. But the lone star ticks are completely different they don't quest like the deer ticks. They actually crawl over the grasses, dry grasses, dry leaf, crawl over the trail paths. When they smell human odor or any mammal odor, they will crawl to the odor, the origin of odor. And if that is a human, it will easily go and latch onto the human. So we call it the hunter ticks because they chase down, they actually follow the trail of the odor, human odor, or any other sense that the tick is attracted to.
0: So do do they prefer humans over animals?
2: Uh, I think lone star, they prefer any mammal host. Honestly, I have to tell. There is no preference here because they want, if they're hungry and if a human is there, they will go to human. If they're hungry, if a deer is there, they will go to
1: deer.
0: And so did I hear you correctly that uh, they can transmit something that causes a person to have an allergy to meat? yes
2: um it's called the mitologia or alpha gal allergy so the tick saliva or the amblyoma saliva because when i had to go a step back here to tell how the ticks actually you know feed on us and how they transmit so when a tick finds a perfect location in a human body to attach so it goes through multiple different stages of feeding process the first step is to find a safe location for the tick in such a way that humans would not recognize or whom humans would not feel. And then it will try to probe the skin with its sharp, pointy mouthparts in such a way that um, you know, it can latch on itself. And while it is feeding, it secretes uh, a lot of chemicals and compounds in such a way that we don't feel the pain. And that's why we never feel any itch or pain when the tick is actually piercing through our skin. It actually secretes those pain killing or pain numbing um, chemicals. So when it is stay attached and then it start to secrete saliva, the saliva, what it does is actually the first purpose is to, uh, is anticoagulation. because when the tick is feeding and if the blood gets coagulated or clotted at the site or in the, in the gut of the tick, it essentially kills the tick, right? So it defeats the purpose. So what it does is it actually secretes chemicals that will actually prevent clotting in such a way that the blood will be still in a liquid form that the tick would uh, imbibe. So while it is doing, the ticks secrete certain um, sugar molecules, that is what that actually humans uh, get allergic to that. So that while the tick is feeding, the longer it feeds, it actually deposits more of the sugar molecules and humans then get allergic to that. So it's a simple process. If the tick is feeding on us for the longer period of time, we we have more potential to get this allergy.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith talking with tick expert Dr. Sarvanan Thangamani from Upstate Medical University. But while I have you, I want to ask you, I want to switch insects and ask you about mosquitoes because I know your lab has done some research on Zika, which is carried by mosquitoes, right? The vi- is it a virus?
2: Yes, Zika is a mosquito-transmitted virus. Um in the same family as the Powassan virus, which is also, which is a tick-borne virus, so it's, we call it Flavivirus. Um, yes, Zika virus is an important virus that of public health concern. As you all know that I, you know, a few years back, it causes a major global outbreak, and it causes severe microencephaly in unborn child, and it has a lot of consequences. Um, so my lab, so what we are doing is that, in addition to tick-pond disease research, we also do mosquito-borne virus research. Uh, we primarily focus on two viruses, Zika virus, and also chikungunya virus. Uh, although the research idea is the same. So our lab is trying to understand, um, if we can better understand the mosquito feeding process, as I just mentioned that the tick, when they feed, they spit, they, provide, they inject the saliva into the human skin. The same way mosquitoes, when they feed, they also inject uh, certain salivary compounds and factors. So we are trying to understand uh, what actually, what salivary compounds are essential for the virus transmission. And if we can identify that, we can develop novel transmission blocking vaccines. So our lab is trying to develop transmission blocking vaccine for Zika virus, Chikungunya virus, and also for Powassan virus. So we are trying to
0: use the same idea and technology to take this one. But we haven't seen Zika in central New York or chicken chikungunya. So in New York, the chicken uh, chikungunya and
2: Zika cases are primarily from the travels, so the traveler-associated cases. So if someone goes to Caribbean islands for a you know, wonderful cruise, or they go to South America or Central America, or they go to Southeast Asia, these viruses are highly prevalent there. These you know, mosquitoes that carry these viruses are highly prevalent there. So if someone gets bitten by a mosquito, let's say, going to a tropical vacation in Caribbean, on a cruise, and when they come back to New York, they now have the virus in their body. And in, in the state of New York, we do have the mosquitoes that transmits the Zika virus, which we call it Aedes aegypti. They are here, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, so these are the two mosquitoes that transmit the Zika virus. They are here in our backyard, which means that when a viremic person, when someone goes to Caribbean islands, get bitten by a mosquito, and lands back in the state of New York, and if they are accidentally exposed to a mosquito, then the mosquito will imbibe the blood, the blood will carry the virus, and then the mosquito will get infected with the virus. And then if that mosquito finds another person, it transmits to the another person. So that's how a local transmission starts at a smaller micro level. So we do have the v- mosquitoes that are competent to transmit Zika virus. However, local transmission of Zika virus or chicken guinea virus uh, have not been reported in the state of New York.
0: Well, let me ask you about a couple that I, I think have been um, the West Nile virus and then triple E, Eastern equine encephalitis, right? We, we've, at least in the past, we've seen cases of these, right? Uh, particularly uh, in the center
2: of New York, we are, we are seeing on a regular basis, uh, the, we call it triple E virus, which is a rare uh, uh, brain infection. It causes a rare brain infection. However, it's highly fatal. And also infects horses as well. That's why it's called equine encephalitis. It's a and it is caused by a mosquito. We call it culicita cule, mosquitoes that are highly prevalent or you can uh, highly abundant in our central New York area and also state of New York. The case fatality rate is 30%. So 30% of the people who get a triple E infection would die of the infection. And uh, on an average in the United States, we get about five to 10 cases. However, I must tell the last year, there was a, a surge in the number of cases, primarily in Massachusetts, not in New York state, but they are our neighbor state, but uh, they suddenly got a, an, an outbreak of uh, Tripoli e there. where uh, Several people died. Um, that's primarily, it's to, humans are accidental hosts, I have to tell that because the Kulisida mosquitoes, they primarily like to feed on birds, but because we are living so close to nature, uh, we are exposing ourselves to you know natural and nature and wildlife. And uh, we are an accidental host. We are not the natural host for this virus, also for the mosquito. So when we get accidentally exposed to this mosquito that carry triple E virus, then we get uh, the infection. At this time, we do not have a vaccine or therapeutic.
0: Upstate's HealthLink on air will be right back with Dr. Saravanan Thangamani after this quick break. State's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking about ticks with microbiologist Dr. Saravanan Thangamani. If a person ends up uh, hiking and they come home and they find a tick on their body, what um, what do they need to do? Can you kind of walk me through? Do they need to remove it right away? Do they need to preserve it?
2: So when someone comes outside from a trail, uh, well, we have to first start, before they are going to the trail. Apply the tick repellent on their body, and preferably even on some of the outer outer layer clothing um, before the. Is, they is out- there a
0: particular tick repellent that you recommend?
2: I think any tick repellent that has uh, at least twenty five percent DEET is good, or any natural repellent that has oil of lemon eucalyptus. Uh, I would say that these two are really good, and I think if someone wants to look for additional options, because. Sometimes, you know, everyone's skin, is, skin uh, tone is different, skin reactions can be different. They can go to CDC website where they clearly list all um, different type of repellents that are approved by CDC. So uh, so they have to apply before they set out, you know, go out of their house to do outdoor activity, spray themselves with this uh, particular um, tick repellent. And uh, there are two ways you can do it. One, you can apply the tick repellent on human body. Or you can apply the outdoor clothing with a chemical called paramethrin. Paramethrin kills the tick. Upon contact with paramethrin, ticks will die. So what I normally do is I actually spray my outdoor clothes, shoes, and socks that I use for outdoor activity with paramethrin every season. In addition to that, before I venture out of my house, I spray tick repellent on me. So I have a two-in-one protection, twice the protection. so when we go to the trails, I think that what I normally tell people is that stay within the trail, don't wander off the trails. Because if you wander off the trails, that's where the dry, dry leaves are there. That's where, you know, the grass, tall grasses are there. They are the perfect habitat for ticks. So we don't want to go into that habitat. So we, if we can stay within the trails, ourselves within the trails is good. Oftentimes, I have seen that people are on the trail, but they will have the dog on the leash, a long leash, so the dogs kind of wander off the trail and come back to the human so basically when they go out, they are tick magnets, so they will bring the ticks to the human or to the household right so so we have to keep our pets and also us on the trail all the times when you are outside, particularly in woods um, that are known to have a lot of ticks and tick on you know ticks and mosquitoes
0: for that fact. Um, do, do people that, put uh, the tick repellent on their dogs? Does that work or no? I think
2: there are dog collars that are available that they can put it, or there are you know um, prescription based medications pills that uh, the veterinarians can prescribe to the owners that actually gives good protection so against tick bites as well. So there are multiple different options for, um, for dogs. Also, dog there is a, a Lyme vaccine for dogs, so I would recommend anyone you know, he takes their dog quite often, would actually make sure that they get the vaccine for dogs as well. So when they come back home, the first thing they have to do is that before they get into the home, what I would say that before they get into the car after their outdoor activity, check themselves quickly on their dress or outerwear to make sure if anything is crawling accidentally. And then they get into the car when they come home to, uh, you know, take off the clothes, put it into the uh, washer dryer for a 10 minute cycle at high heat so high heat kills the tick. Ticks don't like dry condition. Ticks like to have, live in a moist area. So the moment you remove the moisture from the environment, they tend to die quickly. So that's the first thing you have to do. And then within the two hours, I know it's, it's. Uh, I would recommend go right away to take shower and do a tick check on the body. And then uh, you can go to our lab website and we clearly tell which um, location where you have to tell you. primarily, but from what I what I can tell from the ticks that we receive from people, the we have an online form where we ask the people to uh, key in the information like where they collected from, was it on a human or a dog or any other mammal? If it is on a human, where did the tick fit them? Is it a scalp or in the back of the neck or under the arm or the groin area or the you know? So we are collecting that information. I can tell most often we are getting behind the knee and in the scalp for some reason. A lot of ticks we are getting our actually from the scalp and behind the neck area. Um,
0: so I so, wanted I wanted to ask you about that in terms of um, getting ready to go out hiking. If there's ticks are attracted to our hair or our skull, if a person has long hair, does it help to pull it back tight in like a ponytail or or not? I think that's a
2: good idea. I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, I
0: don't have uh, more uh, expertise
2: on it because I'm 100% bald already. So so one thing that uh, ticks will not actually be on my scalp. Um, yes, um, it is important to actually hold their hair. You know, maybe a ponytail is a great one because then you don't have, ticks don't have the opportunity to, you know, crawl through their tight spaces to get into the scalp. And I have to tell ticks are not, uh, ticks, they don't hop, they don't jump, they don't fly. It is a common misconception that people think that they, like, they are like mosquitoes or fleas. No, they are not, which means that if a tick comes contact with their head or hair, it could be because they are probably, they are very close to a bark in a tree or a bush when they kneel down or bend and they come in close contact to that particular branch that the ticks were there. And that's the only thing I can think that. Or sometimes when, let's say, moose or deer, they passes through a, a small bush or a tree and then the, the ticks kind of brush off the deer or the moose. So they stay on the top of the, let's say, on the middle, mid-level of the tree branch. Uh, and then it drops off accidentally. And if a human is there, right there, people will think that you know, ticks drop off from a tree, but it's a, it's a misconception. It is just the confluence of even that. Really imagine moose are pretty tall, which means that when they brush against a, a medium-sized tree, you can find tree at these you know, dry barks right in the mid-level of the tree as well.
0: Do you know if ticks are attracted or repelled uh, by like perfume or human sweat? Or does a scent- Actually,
2: yes. They, yeah, they like the, our dirty body odor than a fresh odor. So I think having uh, a perfume that it kind of, uh, it deceives the tick into belief that it is not a human or oh. it is not a mammal. Because our body secretes chemicals, it, very specific chemical, Cues that the ticks are adapted to smell, and then that's what they are targeting. So if we change the smell, you deceive the tick into believe that there are no human there.
0: Do you think that? I mean, I seem to know people who attract ticks; they get ticks all the time, and I know people who've never had a tick. Are there just some people that are, I don't know, built that way?
2: Because no two humans are the same. So we do. Everyone's body odor is different. So. That's probably the reason, because some people sweat a lot, some people don't, and so it has to do with the all human, what is it, the human body, um, everyone is different, that's why, but it has to do with the body secretions, the body odor, the chemicals that our body uh, kind of uh, exudes is what that actually makes the difference, why someone is attracted to the ticks compared to why someone is not.
0: Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with tick expert Dr. Saravanan Thangamani from Upstate Medical University. And so I want to get back to if you get home and you get in the shower and you do find a tick on your body, um, how do you go about removing it safely?
2: Yeah, I think that, again, um, the important thing is that they have to pull the tick uh, upwards, like I would say exactly 90 degrees to their body or the skin. In such a way, use a a fine tweezer and then pull really upwards 90 degrees. Don't pull in an angle, just pull really upwards. So it actually releases, it pulls the mouth parts also from the skin. You don't want to leave the mouth parts of the skin inside because it can still cause some allergic reactions because uh, it still has the the sharp, serrated edges of the mouth parts. And also, some of the, um, it's kind of itchy thing you don't want to have there. So if you pull straight away 90 degree angle, pull upwards, you will be able to pull the tick intact. And uh, what I would suggest is that if they want to know, uh, I mean, there are two things they have to do. As soon as they pull up the tick, put the tick in a pill bottle or whatever, or a Ziploc bag immediately, and then wash the surface at the site of tick bite with a mild soap or, you know, with a hand sanitizer, sanitizer as well, kind of nicely rub it off. And then for the next 30 days, if someone got bitten, next 30 days, I would advise them to monitor for uh, classical symptoms of tick virus or any acute febrile illness, like a fever, malaise, arthralgic, fee, fee, arthralgic symptoms,
0: any so sickness. So like muscle aches, body aches, yeah. things like that?
2: Exactly. And then if they have a fever or if they start to see a rash at the feeding site, they should contact the public health provider right away. And... In addition to that, if they want to know what the tick has in them, they can actually go to our lab website, thangamani-lab.com, and send to send the ticks to our lab at Upstate, and we can test the tick. We can identify the tick. We can test what the tick is carrying, and then let them know the results as well. Let
0: It'll me tell a- listeners uh, that is actually t h a n g a m a n i dash l a b dot Thangamani Lab. And they need to, does the tick need to be alive when they send it in? It does not have to be alive, but we like
2: to keep it fresh. Even if it is dead, if they are kept fresh, like what I mean fresh is that, uh, put a piece of moist uh, tissue there, that would be great. Um, it just that uh, Because if the tick's dry, it is very difficult to extract biological material from them. Uh, if we can't extract the biological material from them, means that our results may not be accurate. And that's why, Uh, You know, we want to make sure that there is some still, let me call it, there's still some meat left in the tick so that we can extract the material.
0: And so one of the scientists in your lab looks at each tick that comes in, right?
2: Exactly. So we have a a pipeline assembly or assembly pipeline in the lab where when we receive the tick, uh, so we normally receive the, you know, the envelopes to our, let's say, drop off location in our building around uh, noon. So we go around one o'clock or 1.30, you know, bring all those envelopes to the lab, and then we will open one by one, identify them under the microscope, and then document what we find into our database. So in, what is it? In contrary to the previous year, previous year we asked the public to write everything in a piece of paper, send it together with the tick. But now we have kind of a little bit upgraded ourselves to a little bit of automation, So before sending the tick to the lab, we request the public to go to our lab website. There is a sample submission form, tick submission form. If they can click onto that, it will ask certain questions. They can key in that question, it's very simple. Maybe it will take only like a minute or two to fill in. So once they complete the form, they will be given a tick ID. So when they send the tick to us, all they have to do is to put the tick ID into the, the envelope somewhere written there with pencil or a pen, and when we, when we receive the tick in the lab, we open the envelope, we then look for this particular tick ID. It pulls all the information what the user have submitted to us. And then we then add our information onto the form, what tick species it is, does it look like it was attached to a human or not? If so, how long the tick was attached to it? So we document some information for scientific purposes. Once that documentation is done, we put the tick into a special solution to grind the ticks. So that's where we need to, that's the step that allows us to extract the biological material from the tick. And once that biological material is extracted, we then look for specific um, uh, nucleic acid regions that corresponds to a public, uh, a particular tick-borne disease agent. So it's very specific. It will only pull the agent that is specific. If it is a Lyme disease agent, it will only pull pull Borrelia burgdorferi. So we then identify the sequences in those biological material. And then we have a computer that actually, uh, we have a system in such a way that we then document everything into our database. As soon as we do- put into our database, the submitters will get an automatic email with the results. So there is no human to human interaction anymore in our lab. It's like everything we try to go. So when someone submits a tick, they will get a, a reminder of like an update one, which is basically has the information of what they submitted. It's a document that what they submitted to us with the tick ID. When we receive the tick in the lab and we document it that we have received it, there is an acknowledgement email that will be sent out. So that is the email number two. Email number three is when we um, conclude our uh, results. When I'm ready to say, okay, we are ready, this is the result. When I click that button, they automatically get um, the results as well. In addition to that, they can go to our website, use their email and
0: tick ID to pull all the tick submissions they have done in- and then find the results as well online. So beyond the uh, information that goes to the person who found the tick, what is your lab doing with all of this information collectively? Like, why are you doing this?
2: Yes, um, so we, our agenda or objective is to understand the geographical expansion of the ticks and tick-borne diseases in the state of New York. We would like to do this for at least five years. You know, Obviously, it depends on uh, budget and human power. So that's something that we are wrestling with it, but it's always going to be a problem for any researcher to get funding for research. But our idea is that we will do this for at least five years so we can then compare year 2019 to year 2020 to 2021, 2022. And then we can actually slowly understand in a particular county. Let's let me take an example of Onondaga County. Let me say that it's a hypothetical situation. We never, we saw it's a 1% of the ticks that we received are Lone Star ticks in Onondaga County for the year 2019. And then we start to see 2% in 2020, 3% in 2030. You know, so that's what, what we are trying to see is that can we actually uh, track this emergence in a real time over the year? In addition to that, we are tracking all the ticks, not just the Lone Star or deer ticks. We, we track nearly 11 ticks, whatever is prevalent in New York State. And also we sequence, we detect 11 different pathogens or disease-causing agents in our New York state. So we can actually, in addition to Lyme disease, we can also track other tick-borne diseases that are transmitted in our state. Uh, In addition to that, we are capturing weather information because that's the reason why we want to know the zip code and also the date of collection. So we can then use the weather data to predict does climate has any influence on this emergence? So that is the second thing. The other thing is that, like you were asking earlier, does the tick has any special preference to a particular host, a human versus a dog versus? So that information also we are capturing. So over the time you'll be able to tell um, which uh, you know uh, which host species the ticks are interested in feeding on. But I have to tell you, it's a fact from based based on the twenty nineteen data, cats seem to uh, get bitten by the lyme positive ticks that's really? yeah surprisingly cats were the um, host for the majority of the lyme positive ticks surprised me humans are the second ones
0: well very interesting your work is fascinating and i really thank you for uh, sharing it with us thank you to dr sarvan Thangamani, a professor of microbiology and immunology at upstate i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show healthlink on air And now, Deirdre Neelan, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
3: Claudia Redder teaches at California State University at Channel Islands. Her poem Brain Fog attests to the hard work rehabilitation takes as a patient strains to return to her former state. Between each red sentence, I rest. I stare at my PhD dissertation then copy the complex syntax of one sentence, then substitute words. I imitate my former self, mirror the text with my new handwriting, sloppy as a 10 year old scrawl. I think about Elizabeth Bishop's toucan, because I could use uncomplicated mirth, and not think about the leak in the roof which cannot be located, or the sieve of my brain through which words fall like tufts of feathers drifting off the planet life collapses to one room surrounded by books i love that i can no longer read my own leaning tower of pisa yet having left the east coast years ago i can still summon the red sumac when driving north on i-95 a mark of transition between seasons and counties the red berry talisman letting us know we are nearer our goal it still grows on that bit of highway and i am still driving by Hoping for a glimpse of this berry, hungry for something I can name.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about the potential for a COVID 19 vaccine. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase, HealthLink Air." I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.